Uh, thank you all for being here for our Providence Sunday School. Uh, our plan today is to pick up where we uh, were um, the last few weeks where we've been dealing with topics uh, regarding God's providence. Today, we're going to look at both birth and death. So God's providence over conception and birth and God's providence over death and, and end of life. And there is about uh, three months worth of material. I mean, there's endless material on these two topics. So we're going to have to move uh, in with relative speed today. But uh, I hope you're doing well. And if you have a Bible, go ahead and just open up to Genesis chapter 3. We're, we're going to just look at a smattering of texts as we go. But Genesis chapter 3. And Jerry, could you uh, open us in prayer? Oh, yeah, I would love to. Gracious Father, what a joy it is to uh, think about your providential hand in both uh, birth, um, be, even being conceived, um, that, that you knew us, that you knit us together in our mother's womb. Um, fascinating, and then in death as well. And so, Lord, we commit this time to you. We're so grateful uh, for your providential hand over all things that you govern, all things, and that we can rest in that, enjoy that, and uh, live life in a, a manner worthy of the gospel because of that. So we pray that you would lead us and uh, give us um, insights and wisdom from your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, just, just to sort of jump into a, to an important and in some ways heavy topic, depending especially on your, on your background and situation in life, you know, we, we've talked a fair amount about God's providence over, over death in the last year at our church, and we'll talk about it again in, in a few moments, Lord willing. We haven't talked as much about God's sovereignty over the womb, and certainly we've mentioned it here and there, and it's come up now and then, but you know, I think it's said, you know, when you're, when you're young and single, you often don't even think about the issue of infertility and of things like that. Miscarriages is not, it's not something that is really central in your thinking. And then marriage happens, and it, whether it's you or couples that you know and love, uh, everybody knows couples who struggle with this. This may be you. This, this may be something that you've dealt with in your life. It may be something you had no expectation of whatsoever. You thought, I'm going to get married. We're going to have a whole bunch of kids. And suddenly you're years into marriage and, and, and you want children, and, and the Lord has not provided that yet at this point. And so it, it's, a, it's a sensitive issue, it's a relevant issue, and God's sovereignty is not left out of discussion uh, when it comes to this. So th this includes adoption, uh, miscarriage, uh, all, all these things, infertility. And so, um, yeah, it, it's just, it, it's, a, it's an issue that bears weight. And I just want to look at uh, a very well-known verse in the Bible, uh, Genesis 3, after sin has entered the world and God brings down the, the curse uh, first on the serpent. And then, we, we all know this verse, but look with me here. You've got the gospel in verse 15. I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of Eve, that's Jesus, will bruise your head, Satan, and you, Satan, will bruise his heel, the Messiah's heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children." So the difficulty and pain associated with bearing children is a mark of the fall from the very beginning of Scripture. And a professor named James Hamilton has been really intriguing on this. He argues that the rest of Genesis is unpacking God's response to this part of the curse. Because have you noticed something about the founding, uh, I was going to say founding fathers, but the, the patriarchs of, of, of Genesis? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, do you know what they all had in common? They all struggle with infertility, <clears throat> and in each of their stories, there's dramatic examples of this. And so you see God overcoming the difficulty in childbearing uh, in each of their cases. 
But of course, that's not going to be true for all, and that's not what God even promises to all. So just introductory comments as we begin on this subject. Well, it's, it's somewhat related to this. Um, thinking of Genesis 3.16 when he says, I will multiply your pain and childbearing, and in pain shall you bring forth children. I think it has an immediate reference to like actual birth process and difficulties with stuff like that. But because of sin, um, childbearing, I think it also extends out to seeing children grow up potentially to not follow God, to like reject God, to reject his word, to reject you know, Christ and stuff like that. Um, and so, you know, had things gone well, you know, Adam and Eve, had they obeyed, then their children would have had a perfect example in mom and dad of, of righteousness, obedience, resisting temptation. Obviously, they, they did not get that. Um, and so that's what every parent, you know, faces the real prospect of. Um, will my children want to know God or will they reject him? And that, that, that even thinking about that is painful, but many mm-hmm. have actually experienced the pain of that. Um, so not just bringing kids into the world, but getting them, raising them up and sending them out into the world, there, there can be a lot of pain in that as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say, I mean, I th- I just introductory in terms of, this is what we probably repeat every week, the, the same basic idea is uh, why we're spending so much time on Providence, but thinking about God is sovereign over the womb, whether he opens or closes the womb, I think at the end of the day, no matter what you may be going through, whether God gives you a child right away or God closes the womb and it may be years process of pleading with him, I think at the end of the day, we all want to trust that he is good and sovereign. He has good and wise purposes to open the womb, maybe immediately, and he has good and wise purposes, however hard it may be, uh, to close the womb. So I just think at the end of the day, we want our faith to be growing no matter what we may be going through. We want, we want to trust him no matter how painful it may be, that he has good and wise purposes. And again, we've come back to this again and again, but I think it's just important to say at the outset, he has good purposes, even in the pain, it's not wasted. Uh, so yeah, we, we want to just our faith to be growing, no matter where you may be going through. Closed womb, open womb, we want to trust him. Turn with me to Genesis 25. <clears throat> and again, there's a lot of texts we could look at, we just don't have time. But I think the Abraham and Sarah is probably more familiar to us. Uh, we know that they went through, however, was it 25 or whatever years uh, before they had Isaac? I don't remember the exact number, but uh, they even try to go about it the wrong way, right? So Hagar is presented as the solution to infertility. Here, sleep with my handmaid. Okay, sleep with Hagar, and then we'll have a child, uh, Ishmael, through that means. And that was not God's will, and that was not the right thing to do. Um, but let's look at Genesis 25, because Abraham's son Isaac marries Rebekah, and there's just a little detail here that when we went through Genesis seven years ago, it, it, it le- leaped off the page for me. Look, start in verse 20 here. I'll read just a couple verses. Mid- middle of a sentence, Genesis 25, verse 20. And Isaac was how old? 40 years old when he took Rebekah. Now, now note that in your mind. He was 40 years old when they got married. 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel. Uh, I won't say all those names. Verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. So they had infertility, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And then you have Jacob and Esau in the womb. Now stop for a second. If I'm just reading this really quickly, it sounds like a few months went by. You know, I mean, you know, they got married, they weren't able to have children. So maybe a year goes by, and then Isaac prays, the Lord grants the request, and suddenly she conceives twins. But let's look very carefully here, because I don't want to miss verse 26. 
So this is referring to the actual birth of Jacob and Esau coming out. We all love the description of Esau, don't we? Verse 26, <laughs> his brother came out uh, with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was how old when she bore them? 60. 60. Now, how long did they wait? There were 19 years before conception, right? And 20 years before birth, about. So we're talking a two-decade period of time where they had no children at all. And the Bible just moves straight. I mean, the Bible's not belittling it, but we just move from sentence to sentence, and we jump right over that. But the Scripture wants to make clear there were two decades of probably agonizing prayer and agonizing waiting. I don't know how many tears were probably shed. And they know God's made a promise that they're going to have offspring because that was the line of promise. But it's like, Lord, where is, the, where is, where is your promise? Like Abraham said, where is, where, I continue childless. Where is your promise? And after 19 or, or so years, conception occurs, 20 years, birth occurs. And we, we would, I would like to know more of the detail there of, of what all the struggle was like for them in that, in that particular stage of life. Look, look at another text. Let's look at Genesis 29. <clears throat> And you remember Jacob uh, marries the sisters, Rachel and, Le- and Leah, and then he also essentially marries their servants, so he ends up having essentially four wives. And uh, I always mention, when the Bible talks about polygamy, it's not endorsing it. Uh, it's simply telling you what happened. And God worked through the, the, the messed up lives of these patriarchs in many ways and worked for good. But uh, obviously, God's intention was one man and one woman for life, which is why the Garden of Eden is what it was. It was one man and one woman for life. That's God's design. This was a distortion of God's design. But nonetheless, look with me here at Genesis 29 and look at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, remember Jacob loved her less than Rachel? All all this stuff is just messed up, right? This is not good. But when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Again, even her motives for wanting a child here don't look like they are correct. Mm -hmm. Verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Now stop there. She's trying essentially to merit her husband's favor and love by producing children for him. And so each time she's saying, now my husband will love me. Now my husband will be attached to me. Her motives are not right. And of course, her husband is not loving her like he should. So I mean, all this is, there's a lot of sin here. But look at 35. There seems to be some sanctification in Leah's life here. Verse 35. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, look, this time I will praise the Lord. Hmm. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing, at least for a time, she ceased bearing children. And so she, even through this process of having children, the Lord is teaching her and growing her in her walk so that now she's no longer looking to her husband for her security. Where is she looking? This time I will praise Yahweh. This time I will praise the Lord. So even through her being, having the years of fertility, she was having to grow and she was having to advance and she was having to learn to rely on the Lord. And then also Rachel going through the infertility had to learn lessons as well. And just one more thing, look at chapter 30, verse one, very next verse. When, now this is again, sin. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. Understandable, but, but, but not right. She envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. So she's idolized here, it seems, as though having, having children. Verse 2, Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then it goes on and speaks of uh, other children there. But 
you, you already see some of the struggles uh, on both sides here on, on this issue. Thoughts on what's going on and what we see here? You pointed out the way Abraham sinned, and we have the same thing that went on here. Here's my servant, Bilhah, again, trying to um, produce children through another means. And, yes. uh, and Judah does come through Leah in the end. Yes. Uh, and Jesus. That's right. The child of promise, the, mm-hmm. the messianic line comes through Leah, who was not preferred by her husband. Let me show you one more thing in this chapter. Uh, look at verse 22, and this goes back to Rachel. Again, you see God's sovereignty over the womb. This is Genesis 30, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach, and she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add, me, add to me another son. But you see here the language of God opening and closing the womb is, I think, clear in this text. What are some practical takeaways we can get from these stories, especially maybe for couples who, who have or are struggling with issues like infertility? Scott mentioned it earlier, but way to start with knowing that this is true, right? Even before we're married, when we're young, to start to, to rely on God's providence, trust his sovereignty in all things, and then when the blows do come, because they will throughout life, whether it's infertility or hundreds of other things, then we have the foundation to, to rest on, like that God is good, that he is loving, that this isn't accidental, that this is all working together for our good, that this is going to be great in our sanctification. And if it's not having children, even though that's so hard, that's better than having children in, the, in his eyes at that point. And so to trust him. So um, I think these, these passages are tremendous for us to, um, to camp on and to have as a foundation. I mean, I've told my students this because this has come up in class at, uh, at various points. It's like you have to take your plans, bring them to God with open hands. Do not grip tightly the things you think you want to do with your life. Um, because it just, my own experience and my own marriage, um, uh, in terms of, you know, the number of kids we have and so on. And so many other people, it's like, well, this is exactly what my life's going to be and it can't be anything else. And the harder you hold on to your dream, the more it's going to hurt if God decides to take that dream away and give you something else, you know, and that's where the trust really comes in. You know, is God's, is God's plan ultimately better for me? That doesn't mean that the pain is somehow not painful that the grief is somehow not sad, but it does mean that I'm trusting that if God doesn't bring about the circumstances that I want to see, that he's still good and he, his way is ultimately going to prove to be better for me. It might not seem that way in the moment. Like we have to be honest about that. Like mm-hmm. we know these things are true, but it doesn't always feel true in the moment. And that's, you know, we're trusting God's goodness, trusting his character, trusting his promises. Um, I mean, and I'll share a little bit of, of our own story on this. Like, you know, we, Beck and I, we, we wanted to have at least four kids. Like that, that was our plan from the get-go. We wanted to, to have a, a decent-sized family. Um, and the way the Lord worked things out is we didn't get four kids, um, it's not because we believe two is like the magic number, you know, that's the good American number, just have two and, you know, replace yourself and you're good to go. Um, that wasn't our idea at all. Our plan was to have at least four. And God directed, um, you know, our first 
pregnancy ended in a miscarriage. Uh, we had Laura and Jackson, and those pregnancies were so difficult, and the whole you know, hormonal postpartum was so strong. It was like, we can't go through that again. Um, I mean, it was, it was really rough. And so we stopped where we did, not because that was our first desire, but it was because that's the way in God's providence things worked out. And, you know, we are grateful for the two kids we have. We wouldn't change that for the world. Um, you know, if we hadn't miscarried the first one, things would look a lot different for the Renz family right now. And so that's where the, the trust in God's goodness and God's sovereignty really comes into play because you realize, you know, that was a hard, not that I choose to go through some of the stuff we went through in that regard, but it's like, I wouldn't change any of it. Greg, I don't, I don't, don't say anything you don't feel comfortable saying, yeah. but the, the miscarriage at the beginning with the first yeah. pregnancy, uh, can you just talk a little bit about getting through that and what that was like? For, I know that was years ago now, but... Um, I mean, well, we, we had um, waited to start having a family until I finished with seminary. Um, you know, again, our plan was I get seminary and I get full-time ministry job, then we start having our family. Um, but we, we couldn't get pregnant right away. Like it took us almost a year before before we even she Becky even got pregnant, and so we were starting to look at the realistic possibility: Are we even going to be able to have kids? And then we have our first kid, or oh, she gets pregnant, and then six weeks later, you know, some concerning things. We go to the to the the OBGYN, and they do the ultrasound, and there's no baby in there. Um, and so I mean, it, it was it was hard. Um, and it's one of those things like, you, you know God's in control and you trust that, but there's some, some aspects of that that you never fully heal from. And what I mean is we, we have a, a little gift bag. It's a yellow gift bag that we have. Um, <laughs> I don't cry much when I talk, but I might cry when I talk about this. Uh, that's up in our closet that had like all the initial presents and things for that child. I have not been able to look in that bag one time. I see it, and I go on, but I can't look in it. Um, but I know God's good, and there is no mistakes in that, and I trust by his goodness that that child is okay um, in his presence. Um, but it, it's hard. I mean, it, it's some things you, you can move on, but you, they never go away fully. I mean, because that, that was a baby we wanted to hold and love. And God in his goodness said it's not quite time yet. And so I tell you, we, we love the two he gave us a whole lot more because of that, um, a whole lot more, um, because we realized the gift that God could take, could take them away at any moment. And so we really try to make the best of that. Um, but yeah, so it's, yeah. Uh, that's fantastic. And I, I want to go to another text that goes right with what you're saying. Uh, can we turn to 1 Samuel 1? Scott reminded me of this the other day. This is just one of those great texts. It's just one of those amazing passages in Scripture. And you see Hannah, who also is a woman unable to get pregnant. And remember, she gives birth to Samuel eventually, but that was not something that happened quickly. And I just want to look at a few samplings of these verses because they are so rich. Again, it's another case of polygamy. Right? The, the, uh, the other wife was able to have children, but Hannah was not able to have children. And let's just look here at a few verses. 1 Samuel chapter 1, uh, verses 5 and 6. Again, I'm going to skip most of the verses just for time, but 1 Samuel 1, verse 5. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion. The husband gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. 
And her rival, the other wife, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Look at verse 10. She was deeply distressed, Hannah, was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. You see, there's tears involved in this infertility. Verse 11, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. And remember, she, he thinks she's drunk because she's just mouthing words and in, and in a state of grief. Verse 15, but Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. So I just, just I want to say this straight from Scripture. Those struggling with infertility, it is right and good to take your grief and to just pour it out like water in the presence of the Lord. The, the grief that is building up inside is not something we're meant to ignore. It's not something we're meant to just tuck away and just act like it's not there. It's not unholy that we're grieving over those things. There's something good and right about grieving over that. And what do we do? It's the question is, what do I do with the grief? That's the question. I don't act, it doesn't make me rebel against God. It's not like a, you know, curse God and die sort of thing with grief. It's not a, I'm just gonna let it fester and come out in some unhealthy way in the future. No, I, I'm gonna process it in the presence of God. I'm, I'm gonna pour out my, my heart before the Lord. So she just, she pours out her troubled spirit in the presence of God. And look at this, this is, this is amazing. Uh, verse 18, I know we're moving around, but verse 18, she said, or excuse me, and, and she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes, talking to Eli the priest. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Verse 19, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah, that's, his, that's her husband, knew Hannah, his wife. And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. But you see here, the grief was poured out. And then she got a degree of real consolation, she, a, a real degree of the, she was no longer sad in that moment. And I'm sure this was a repeating process, going to the Lord and coming back. But any thoughts about, I know, Scott, you've talked about this passage being uh, powerful for you. Yeah, I mean, I would just say, coming, going real quick back to what uh, Jerry and Greg were just saying, in terms of, I think, Jerry, what you're saying in terms of just trusting him now, I just think is so, especially if you're young, I think coming to a place, I've talked about this before, where God is absolutely, utterly trustworthy. Like, just being absolutely assured of that, get that down rock solid, like, ballast in your soul. That he's absolutely, utterly trustworthy. Now, all the details of your life, he may do it totally different than what you're thinking mm -hmm. he's going to do. He, he, like, you're not thinking you're going to lose your, your first child. He may do it totally different. So it's the details we don't know, but we should never waver in the fact that he's utterly trustworthy, absolutely utterly trustworthy. And so when things start going, little trials in the week, which we all face them, begin to trust him in the little trials. And over time, then he's going to prepare you for, for bigger trials. When, when, when a child does die or when you can't have children, you want to, your faith to be growing always. Just coming back to he's utterly trustworthy. But like, if you're going through infertility, uh, one of the things about infertility is a lot of people don't see it necessarily. But like, mm -hmm. if you have cancer, everyone in the church knows, and they're going to pray. Well, or an accident, like Zach Petty had that accident. Like everybody knows about this this accident, uh, and they're praying. But infertility, people just don't know. And maybe a small circle of people know. Other people have no idea. So it's almost like you're isolated in one sense going through this. And uh, there there are unique challenges to it. But I think saying it right out the gate, 1 Samuel 1 is a great place to go to, meaning there should be nothing wrong with just pouring out and weeping. I mean, Greg is still emotional now about losing a child. Uh, Jerry, you said when your brother lost a baby, that's one of the saddest days of your life. I mean, the grief is still stays to some degree. There's nothing wrong with just pouring out our souls 
And what I'm just going through with Liliana, all that, it was Jesus was a man of sorrows, like acquainted with grief. Like that is immensely comforting. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. So I think what an encouragement is to, for us to pray. Uh, I quoted this in my sermon, but it's so good from J.C. Rowell. He said, our great high priest is very gracious. He can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He is never tired of doing us good. He knows that we are weak and feeble people in the midst of a weary and troublous world. He is ready to bear us and help us. I mean, what an encouragement it is to just pour it out. He, he loves us. He cares for us. He's quick to show us mercy. So, so we go and we take it there. But I would also just say, with infertility, there are unique challenges in terms of there are going to be unique sin struggles that people may not think about. Like, uh, for us, it could be envy. Like, the sin of envy will rise up where, where God in his goodness brings a trial. He closes the womb to reveal sin in you. Like that's what uh, John Newton would say. So it's like the, the sediment at the bottom of, of, of water in a fish tank and you shake that thing up and the sediment rises up. Well, that, you don't even know the sin's there, the sin of envy. The trial shakes the, us up. The trial shakes us up and reveals the sediment comes up. Like idol of comfort or whatever it is, but it's envy or, or the, I'm idolizing a child. And that's what's happened for us. When we couldn't get pregnant, we were envious of other people. Like other people uh, would, would get pregnant right away. And you're just, your, your first res- gut response was not joy. Well, that, that shows that there's, there's real sin in me. I, mean, I remember when y'all announced Micah was, y'all were pregnant with Micah. My, my response was not joy because there, there was genuine sin that God in his goodness was, was revealing to me. So even when he's closing the womb, we pour out our hearts for him, before him. He's gracious, but if he continues to close the womb, like he is good in, in all of that. He, he's making you pray. Uh, he's revealing sin in you. I mean, trials hit when you're a normal day, like your prayer life can just dry up and you, you say the same old things, but not when trial, like it breathes new life and it drives you to your knees. That's God and his goodness. And when God does give you, he may not like with your brother, he may not, he may not, but if he does, it just like you're saying, it makes it sweeter when God, you know, gives you mm-hmm. a child after years of praying, it's, it's going to be a totally different response than if he instantaneously uh, gives you a child. So and there's just some, some, Thoughts on it, yeah. It was so sanctifying for our church, Scott, I think, as uh, we watched you and Liliana, and, and then as God provided Michael. Could you tell about that for maybe those that uh, weren't around at that time? Because what a, what a joy that little guy. Oh, yeah. I and mean, what a, you know, just miraculously in, in, from our eyes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I just think even, now I'm just thinking of something else. Like, you look back and you know, uh, God was good in everything. Like all the pain, all you, you do it again, like you, like you would say. Uh, so like when the North Avenue church first started, if we were choosing how we wanted it, we would have had two or three kids already when the church started. And you have to think if we have two or three kids or you say a four and a two year old, there's no way we could have invested in people at church. There's just no pot. Like Liliana could not have invested the way she invested that. Like even there, you look back and you say, God knew what he's doing. He was good. Like he helped, we gave us all this time to invest in people that we wouldn't have had. Uh, so you can look back and see God's goodness. But then you, you have the whole, our whole community group, everybody was praying, you know, to, for us to get matched. And so when we were matched up, I mean, people wept. Like, I remember Shannon Rodriguez just broke down weeping uh, with Liliana afterwards. And the whole church just to rejoice with him. And uh, I remember when we first brought him to church, there was a line of people wanted to hold him, hug him. Like, it, it, it makes, because everyone's praying about this, the, the, this baby, and then you get matched. And it's just like immense joy that every, everyone shares, shares in that joy, too, you know. Yeah, I asked Scott permission if I could just share a couple of freeze frames from posts that Liliana posted on Facebook in 2018. We're already emotional. We're probably going to be more emotional looking at this, okay? I'm just warning you. Um, so this, this is February 23rd, uh, 2018. This is when their adoption process had just begun. And uh, man, this, yeah, this is very moving to, to see. But she has the baby McAndrew here, and they're waiting. And she, said, she has, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus.'" just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord, 
Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him or and or. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. And then Liliana writes, today, as I was thinking that our lives can change in any moment, I was feeling grateful to the Lord for where we are now. It hasn't been an easy road for us to become parents, but in the midst of everything, he is with us. And that is such a sweet promise. We are enjoying this time together as much as we can. Then a few months later, this is a couple months later in May, May 4th, um, the waiting season. It's been one of the hardest things we have experienced in this journey of adoption. In eight months, we have shown our profile book four times. Twice, moms decided to pursue parenting, which is ideal. And the other two times, moms decided to move forward with another family, which is hard to hear. In the midst of all this roller coaster of emotions, we can rejoice. You hear that? In the midst of all this roller coaster of, emo- of emotions, we can rejoice because God never changes. He's been such a good father who has shown us the beauty of our own adoption, so our adoption to God, and, has, and how privileged we are to do this. I'm just grateful and more excited than ever to become a mom, and I know Scott is going to be a good daddy. We can't wait to meet you, baby M, wherever you are. Also so grateful for everyone who's been asking and praying with us and for us, the love and support we have received. It's been more than we could imagine. One more. So this is now a few more months forward, September 22nd, 2018. It's amazing that it has been a whole year since we became a waiting family. I look around at our baby stuff, and some days are harder than others to be patient, but God in his kindness uses sermons, songs, people, family, and little things here and there to remind us that he is with us. He's been with us all the way to this point. We have learned so many things during this time of waiting. You hear that? We we have learned so many things during this time of waiting. He's been preparing our hearts for this wonderful job to be parents, and I never want to forget his goodness and kindness in our lives. But that's just so powerful to see how the Lord worked through in Scott and in her life, just the incredible degree of sanctification and growing in trust and knowing what to do with tears and and having the community around you, loving you. Um, Yeah, it's just powerful stuff. Reflections on that? I'll say this, like thinking over, over, you know, what Liliana was saying and just what we've been talking about, like, um, and drawing off, Scott, some of what you were saying, like God knows the greatest thing that he can ever give us is more of himself. Mm-hmm. Like there is no greater gift that God can give than the gift of a deeper, more intimate, close fellowship with him. And for every single one of us, he knows exactly what it's going to take to get us there. And that's why you can't look at someone else and compare yourself. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's no metric by which you can say, well, they went through this because, you know, they didn't struggle with, we don't know. Okay. We don't know. We don't even need to go down that road, mm-hmm. not even start down that road. Don't even look at that road. That's God's road um, to deal with. Yes. It is, it is completely outside of our, our factoring. Um, but God knows exactly what it's going to take for each one of us. And he is doggedly determined that we not have anything take first place more than him in our lives because he knows that is the path to the greatest joy, the deepest trust, um, the true strength, and all those other things we talk about. Um, God knows exactly how to get us there. And he is so very, very, very patient um, in the process. Like, and I, I, think, I think I said this last week, like if you look um, at a Christian going through this at times, you might be like, I thought you said you were a Christian, you know, where's your trust at? Like, you know, you, you'll ask some questions, but that is God 
refining. That is God in the midst of his process. When, when a, a vine dresser prunes the vine, you're going to be like, whoa, that looks terrible. But what is it for? It's for more growth. It's for health. It's for strength. It's for fruit. Um, pruning, and, I, and I, that's the image that I wanted, I wanted to make sure I mentioned. I thought about that last week. All of this is God pruning so that we can be stronger and healthier and bear more fruit for him, which is the place of joy for us. Again, the process is painful, and, and I, you know, I would never prefer to go, to go through certain things, but again, I wouldn't change it because that's how God got me to where I'm at. And I would not change anything for where I'm at. I wouldn't change a bit of it. Um, but God, God is like, he knows exactly, and Jerry, you said this, our trials are like custom made or something mm-hmm. like that. But I mean, it's true. God knows exactly what we need to get us to the point to where our hope in him, our love for him, our trust in him, our faith in him, and all those things are, are more rock solid, more immovable, more grounded, more rooted than they ever were. And if that's his goal, because that's what's best, then preach that to ourselves as often as we need to, as often as, as we can, because if, if we get that, then all the, the, the hard stuff that we go through, we can say, okay, God, I know you're doing something. I can't see it right now. I don't feel it yet, but I know, I know without a doubt, God, that you're good. I can trust you. And the other side of this is going to be greater joy and greater fruit. And then Scott mentioned this, and you certainly <laughs> insinuate that, but as a church then, we need to not be judgmental or in any way, but just come along and side and mm-hmm. support. And uh, what a great opportunity for us to then be sanctified with whoever the couple is that's going through the trial. And let me go to one other text. If you, if you can turn to 2 Samuel, and I know we've talked about this not terribly long ago, but turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And we, we know David and Bathsheba, that story, and what all happened there. And this is... Um, David, you know, is confronted by Nathan and confesses his sin. But uh, look with me here, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 15. And the Lord afflicted the child. And again, there's, there's no hesitation that God's providence was here in control. His sovereignty was in control. The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. Just, just a real quick, and I, I don't want to, Greg, Greg will, I think, address this in his sermon some, but don't ever think that God's not sovereign over even sickness. We, we, you know, we addressed this some last week. But the Lord afflicted the child. The child became sick. Verse 16, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. Verse 18, let's skip ahead. On the seventh day, the child died. And then look at verse 22. He, David said, while the child was still alive... I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. I think that sentence is huge. I shall go to him, Mm -hmm. the child who is deceased. He shall not return to me. And we've already told a number of stories. I've told this before. I'll just make it very brief. When Kelly and I had a miscarriage uh, after Molly, so this is before Maggie, after Molly. This is, I think, uh, December 2019. We had seen the first ultrasound together. There was a good heartbeat. The baby seemed to be doing well. This is at, I don't know, maybe eight weeks or somewhere around eight weeks. And we got to see the baby, heart rate doing well. Everything looked good. Developmental, seemed, everything seemed fine. 
And then we went back for a second checkup. This is probably around the 12-week mark. This is December 2019, and uh, there was no heartbeat. There, there seemed to be no heartbeat. And the, the woman doing the, 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 uh, the sonogram or the ultrasound uh, said, well, let me go get, I need to go get the doctor. And so Kelly started crying. We, I, I, we were both immediately emotional. The doctor comes in and, and checks, and there's no heartbeat. And um, so tons of tears. Oh, my goodness. Tons of tears. Uh, Kelly and I go out to, the, to our cars. We had two different cars that day because we had to go to, I had to go to work, I think, and she had to go somewhere else. So we, had, we go get in our van and we sit in the van. We've known now for like, what, 30 minutes, 45 minutes we've known. And we're sitting in the van and we talk for a little while and we pray for a little while. And then I go get in my car by myself and she gets in her van. We both have to go separate ways for the next few hours. And I, I just vividly remember going into my car and getting my Bible out and reading those verses. He, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And, and I take that verse as saying, where's David going to go when he dies? David's going to heaven. So where is this child that can't come back, but David's going to go to? I think that child's in heaven. I think that's where David's going to be. So I, I, I take this verse. I hope I'm not overreading it. That's, that's my understanding of this text. And so I read this text, and, and it was a great comfort to me that, that morning outside of the doctor's office because I, I believe that's true. We believe in the humanity of the unborn, Right? We believe in the full dignity and humanity of the unborn from conception till birth. And when a miscarriage happens, a human being is lost. This is not a pre-human lump of cells. This is a, a, a human being, an image bearer of God, uh, who has an eternal soul and will live forever in a resurrected state one day. And, and I believe now all miscarried babies are in the intermediate state with Christ. Not, not, mm. because, they're, not because they're innocent, because in Adam we're all guilty, and not because they, they, you know, they, they deserve it because they're righteous inherently. No. But we believe in God's gr incredible grace. God covers those children uh, in some way. I, I don't understand how the mechanics of that all work, but God in His mysterious grace covers those children in the blood of Christ is, is my understanding. I know that, that may to some seem going beyond the text, but that's, that's my take on that. Any other thoughts on children as in that situation as they as they go to heaven? I thought that was well said. Mm -hmm. Well, let, let's transition in our last minutes here to to the topic of of death, which we're already on that topic right now. But Jerry, could you could you introduce us to this topic? As yeah. we have about fifteen or, I, or less minutes. There is uh, Piper has a bunch of great verses. I'd just like to start with those Hebrews two. 14 and 15, and I'm just going to read them quickly here. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook in the same things, and through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through fear, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That was interesting. We are free from that lifelong slavery of being worried about death. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 to 57, O death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We, are, we live by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. We'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Psalm 16, 11. Scott, you've referenced this one. Um, time and time again, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What Liliana is experiencing right now. Psalm 73, 24 to 26. I love this. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me to glory. Do we not have all that we need in, the, in that one verse right there? While we're down here, he's guiding us with this counsel. We're in great shape. After we die... He's taking us to glory. We are in even better shape. Whom have I in heaven but you? 
and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Can we say that today? There isn't anything on earth. That hit me when at 30, probably two years ago, studying Psalms in Bible college, this first got me, and 32 years later has just proven that that's true. There isn't anything better than knowing the Lord Jesus. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. First, uh, Philippians 1, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Philippians 3, 20, for as our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be with his glo- like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject uh, to be to subject all things to himself, and so Piper listed seven things that I felt were worthwhile. Death is real, but number one, Christ has defeated death by his death and resurrection. Number two, there's no need to fear what kills the body. We need to fear God, who uh, is in charge of the soul. Number three, in one moment, we will go from this life to being in the presence of Christ. Number four, God will raise our bodies from the dead. Number five, at the second coming, he'll give us that glorified body. Number six, God will renew all creation. And then, number seven, we will have uh, the joy and pleasure forever in the radiance of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, and, that, and that's forever. So earth has nothing I desire um, besides you, and, and I'm probably like you into saying this life is incredibly abundant. John 10, 10, Christ came to give us life and to give it to us more abundantly. So I wouldn't trade this life for anything, Ben, Amy, Megs, uh, my job, pork products, um, my wheelchair. I mean, I, no wins. David Hancock, every Wednesday when he comes over to help me get up, and I love this, every time he's praying, he prays, there's not five people more um, blessed than we are. Well, that means that there's three of you in this room that are with David and I. You might want to have him come over on a different day because then there would just be two. You would be you and David and me, and then there are two others. But there, and I believe that there aren't five people more blessed than us, but yet this isn't as good as it gets. It is just getting better. Um, and so, you know, you could say for the believer, we're dying to get out of here, right? This isn't our home and in two ways. That's the only way to leave this to get to heaven finally. Um, but our citizenship um, is there. And man, Scott, could you give us just kind of insights of, of how you've processed that um, through Liliana? Yeah, well, let me just read. I'm going to read a quick excerpt from John Patton, missionary, New Hebrides Islands to, to cannibals. Just two quotes. First one, uh, I mean, very violent people group that he was trying to reach, and they, it, he, he faced uh, near-death experiences. This, this particular occasion, they're all surrounding him, clubs and guns uh, threatening to kill him. This is what he said. They encircled us in a deadly ring, and one kept urging another to strike the first blow or fire the first shot. My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. 
God is sovereign over death. Like we're immortal till our work is done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken, that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear to leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ, who is all power in heaven and on earth. He rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savage of the South Seas. I mean, that is so true. Like we're immortal to our work is done. Like he's prepared good works for us to walk in. So like if we have breath today, that means that there's good works for us to do. We want to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I think if you have, you have breath, you want to trust God, he could take you away, take you to heaven. But while we're here, we want to trust him. And then uh, when he loses his wife, I just want to read this real quick. He says uh, after her death, he said, our short united life had been cloudless and happy. I felt her loss beyond all conception or description. In that dark land, it was very difficult to be resigned, left alone, and in sorrowful circumstances, but feeling immovably assured that my God and Father was too wise and loving to err in anything that he does or permits, I looked up to the Lord for help and struggled on in his work. I do not pretend to see through the mystery of such visitations wherein God calls away the young, the promising, and those sorely needed for his service here, but this I do know and feel, that in the light of such dispensations, it becomes us all to love and serve our blessed Lord Jesus so that we may be ready at his call for death and eternity. So I mean, I, for me, it's, it's people like this in church history who have trusted God in, in immense suffering just are massively helpful uh, for us because they, they honor God and you just think it's the same God that I serve, that they serve, that helped them, that can, that can help you through uh, the struggles. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think Liliana, when, when she just, her faith just, you saw her faith on display on the screen right here. And that was before the trial. With the trial, her faith was at a whole other level. And uh, just, she knew the Lord was, Psalm 138.8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Uh, just to see her trust God so fully, I think, I don't know. It's just, I don't know. It's just, and she, yeah. That hit me again yesterday, Scott. Thinking of Liliana's radiance live in the hospital bed was so striking to me. She is far more radiant than that lad right now. And uh, we will be as well. Good days. Good days ahead. Can you pray for us, Jerry? Yeah. Father, we long for that day when um, we will be with you. We will know you as you are. We will see you. Um, but until then, Scott's right. We want to um, abound. We want to get busy with every work that you have for us. We're so grateful for um, the life, the abundant life that you've given us. But we look forward to, we long, we with Paul say it is uh, better by far uh, to be with you. Lord, we have never been this close before. So we look with eager anticipation. We pray you'd give us um, an urgency, an excitement like we've never had before to uh, race to the end. Um, that we would someday be able to say, uh, like Paul, that we have... Um, kept the faith. We have finished uh, the race um, that you have uh, marked out for us. And Lord, we're thankful that you have that race marked out. You're the only one. We're immortal until uh, that day that we go be with you. And um, and I just think we're we want to express how thrilled we are that um, that is closer than ever. And I ask that um, our life and momentary trials. Um, you have brought into our life that we would face those and we would go through those um, knowing that we can fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and that we would fix our eyes not on what's seen, but on what's unseen, knowing that what's seen is temporary and what's unseen is eternal. And we commit um, this to you in Jesus' name.
Amen.